It must be such a relief. Oh, it's so nice to do that. <laughs> it always is. Okay, 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12. Yes, I can still count. Um, all right, you get a chance to reread the intimations, Zach? Yeah. What did you think? Um, I think this is the first time I had read it post our, our Wordsworth becomes a hack after his middle of his life discussion. Uh -huh. So it was, it was more depressing, I think, kind of, not just the, 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 the fleeting ephemeral struggle to find this positive perspective on, on life and, and, and the loss of childhood, but also... Are you being, like, polite by putting it that way? Instead no, of no, saying, you no, know, becoming true. your age? Yeah, go ahead. I wasn't even thinking of that. Yeah, I'm but, sure. <laughs> um, but also, you know, this notion that this is one of the last, I guess, lu lucid poetic moments you will ever have in this channel. And, I, you know, it didn't quite bring me to the, the Yeatsian tears at, you know, but there's a tree, but it, it did make Blake kind of... Blake Just... Oh. It's okay. It's, it's Blake, Yeats, their they're, they're, um, consonantial no, that, rhymes. That's not, a, that's not a forgivable mistake. Um, um, Yates would have no, thought it, it was. Did, it, did, it did seem like more wistful to me. Yeah, yeah. Can I ask something? You can. You can ask something else eat too. Yeah. In addition to my yeah, that, yeah. Um, <laughs> I I don't know words with very well, but why do we keep saying he became a hack later? Like, why? Do, what is it that made his writing so incredibly? I don't know. Terrible. <laughs> Uh, in people's minds. Do you want to say? I mean, he just stopped being inventive in any way. He fell into all of the cliches and paradigms of, of older poets instead of inventing something new, which is what he was so famous for. And I think, in, in my mind also, it was the fact that his writings became sort of politically charged. They were for... Yeah, uh, Like, I, it would be like if today, you know, Seamus Heaney started writing poems for, like, Mitt Romney, in my mind. <laughs> no, it'd be more like if Seamus Heaney. Well, maybe Mitt Romney. I would. I would say, uh, kind of, sort of, more John Boehner. Um, he basically what uh, it it's it might be worth looking at a couple of the poems that the younger Romantics wrote about him. Um, but essentially, they're two. I mentioned this before, but I'll just I'll say it again. There, there are basically two generations of Romantic poets, um, five of whom knew each other in one way or another, got to know each other fairly well. Um, not each of the, each of the five didn't know all the others, but there was but the but there was a social network, so they were friends of friends. Um, and the one who was not quite part of that group uh, was Blake, who was also the oldest of them. But of the five who were part of a group that was um, uh, reciprocally thinking about each other, um, there's an older generation um, born around 1770, and those two are Wordsworth and Coleridge. There was a third um, member of that group called the Lake Poets named Robert Southey, um, who was really bad. Um, and I mean, not uh, what does really bad mean? not really great. Um, but he also became um, extremely conservative. But Coleridge, Wordsworth, and Southey started out as, as radical in their youths. And um, uh, Coleridge and Southey planned to move to Pennsylvania, actually, and start a commune. And 
um, do all sorts of utopian things. Um, then there was a younger generation, about 20 to 25 years younger, eh, 20 years younger, um, who were Byron, Shelley, and Keats. Dorothy Parker called them. Anyone know Dorothy Parker's poem about them? Byron, Shelley, and Keats were a trio of lyrical treats, is how it begins. Um, and Byron, Shelley, and Keats, Byron and Shelley were politically radical um, and stayed politically radical. They were, they were um, sufficiently radical that they were persecuted. Um, uh, I mean, persecuted in a way that was tolerable, but still persecuted by the government. Um, and Shelley got kicked out of Oxford when he wrote a pamphlet as an undergraduate called The Necessity of Atheism. Um, not, you know, arguments for agnosticism, or, but the necessity of atheism. Um, and they, in their youth, were watching what was happening to the previous generation, which is they were doing what people start doing in their 40s, um, which is um, deciding that order, um, a well-ordered society where things were secure was kind of important, and what happened in France with the French Revolution and then with Napoleon was terrible and England was a place where people could rely on things working out pretty well. And they, because they were seeing what the radical youth were doing, um, the, the middle-aged first-generation romantic poets were becoming more and more conservative out of fear, as, which is one of the drivers of middle-aged conservatism, is fear of what um, people in their 20s are thinking and saying and demanding and doing. It doesn't have to be a right-left thing. Um, you could also say that if um, something like that is happening right this minute, it's fear of the Tea Party. Um, that's driving a lot of a uh, lot of people um, to a more moderate stance than they used to have. Um, so, so these sorts of things. Th this is always a dynamic that um, a middle-aged group of people think that oh no, here come these firebrands and they're going to destroy stuff that they don't have enough sense to value, um, and the um, very fact that they see these these people they see as destructive coming along um, makes them all the more concerned to preserve what they think is at risk of being destroyed. So there, there's a kind of um, um, posi or, or forcing people into other positions. Wordsworth, who was clearly, I mean, everyone knew what an astonishingly great poet he was, um, was started writing political pamphlets, and those political pamphlets became more and more pro-government and, 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 in fact, pro-Tory government. And he was eventually given a sinecure. That is, he was made collector of stamps for the place where he lived, which was a job where he was paid by the government um, enough to live on, enough to live on well, um, for very little work. And so um, this was a huge disappointment for his um, younger followers because they basically saw him taking a government job um, and supporting the government in exchange in a job which was, which was not nothing as far as work went, but it was very little work. And then he started writing all sorts of pamphlets um, supporting the government. But the poetry, he then wrote um, a series of over 500 poems called the Ecclesiastical Sonnets. Um, which I don't know anyone in the world, I probably do know, but they've hidden from me the fact that they've read them. Um, 
and they're basically just pro-Church of England sonnets. Um, and Wordsworth, who had been um, a fairly, he'd, been, he'd always been Protestant, but a fairly radical Protestant. That is, the idea in Protestantism, the way Milton um, was writing for it. Milton was the most important poet for all the Romantics um, because Milton um, essentially, however you read Paradise Lost, and has anyone read it? Um, okay, so however you read it, um, it's clear that what Milton is doing is um, making a very radical claim for freedom of belief. Um, you may get punished if you believe the wrong thing, but you're free to believe whatever you want. Um, the, the human soul, but also the angelic soul, is free to make its own choices and um, is therefore entirely thrown upon its own freedom. Milton, more than anyone before him, was a poet who wrote about um, radical mental freedom, radical psychic freedom. And for the younger romantics, um, radical psychic freedom meant um, that Satan, to use Shelley's terminology, was the hero of Paradise Lost. So what Paradise Lost tells is the story of how Satan um, and his followers rebel against God in heaven because they think it's a, that heaven is a hideous, stultified society where all people do is sing really boring psalms and stay on their knees before God and bow to him and say he's the Lord and he's wonderful and they have they they have they see they don't see any reason why this should happen why what they're worshiping him for except his demands to be worshiped so satan leads a rebellion against god and takes this is all this is all true this is all um more or less uh christian doctrine um, that this actually happened, although Milton um, extends the story um, using Homeric and Virgilian ideas. That is, he retells the story with lots of battle scenes from Homer and Virgil. Um, battle scenes in heaven. Um, there's a three-day battle in heaven in which the loyal angels um, fail, even though they outnumber the rebel angels two to one, they fail to put the rebellion down. Um, and it's a fight to the standstill. And finally, the Son of God um, comes in what's called the chariot of paternal deity, um, which is sort of biblical, um, and drives Satan and his followers to hell. But in hell, they still say that they are, the, the famous thing that Satan says is, here at least we shall be free. The Almighty hath not built here for his envy, shall not drive us hence. And in my mind, to reign is worth ambition, though in hell, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Hail horrors, hail infernal world, and thou profoundest hell receive thy new possessor who brings a mind not to be changed by place or time. The mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell a hell of heaven. What matter where if I be still the same and what I should be, all but less than he whom thunder hath made greater. So Satan is essentially saying here in hell, dark, and horrible as it is, a place of unremitting constant pain, I prefer to be here and master of myself and free 
to think as I want than to live a life of ease in heaven, but as a slave, um, which is what he saw his position in heaven as being. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so I'm actually wondering, it might be worth, um, if, if it's here, I'll read you um, Byron's unpublished dedication to his great poem, Don Juan, um, which would be page 837, maybe, depending on their pagination and their uh, indexing. Um, No, they skip it. Um, <coughs> so there's a dedication to Don Juan, um, to, to um, Bob Southey, who's the Poet Laureate of England. Um, and Byron dedicates Don Juan to him. Um, he begins, Bob Southey, you're a poet, Poet Laureate. And like something like all members of, of that brown-nosing race, um, um, and though it's true that you've become a Tory at last, yours lately has become a common case. Um, and then the other people who become Tories at last, that's the rhyme, laureate and toriate. It's, it's a very funny poem. Um, are Wordsworth and Coleridge. Um, and then he, he compares them to Milton. Um, they say, look, Milton supported the church, we support the church, and, um, and, and Byron cannot believe that they would dare compare themselves to Milton, who um, in real political life was an extraordinary rebel. He was part of the, um, the revolution that beheaded the king. Um, that rebelled against Charles I. Um, he was on the parliamentary side. He was part of the revolution that rebelled against the king, um, whom they regarded as a tyrant, and eventually tried and beheaded him. Um, and then Milton was, Oliver Cromwell then became the um, leader of England, elected to that leadership by parliament. And Milton was his Latin secretary, which doesn't sound like such a big deal, I mean, not a small deal, but not such a big deal, except that that's the, that was the equivalent in 1650 of being Secretary of State. That is, he was the person involved with foreign, um, um, uh, with foreign diplomacy. He was the person who ran those things. So he was part of a revolutionary government. And when that government was overthrown in 1660, he wasn't still part of the government in 1660, but when that government was overthrown in 1660, he came very close to being executed himself. Um, and it's at that point, um, after a friend of his intervened, um, it was at that point <coughs> that he started writing Paradise Lost. Um, he was in disgrace. He was blind. He was... Um, um, the, the, the political work of his life had been overthrown. Um, what he saw was that tyranny had come back and, and defeated a revolution on behalf of freedom. Milton was famous for having written, um, no, he was famous for many reasons, but um, probably the most influential thing he wrote is an essay called Areopagitica, which was the first great essay advocating freedom of speech. 
and um, the First Amendment of the Constitution is strongly and heavily influenced by what Milton was doing a bit over 100, 140 years um, before it was written. Um, and Aripagetica, the, the law in England was you couldn't print anything without getting a license from the government to print it. And Milton printed Aripagetica without a license, um, demanding freedom of speech and saying that um, why would you be afraid of what anyone wrote as long as truth were in the field? Truth shall vanquish her foes. You don't have to have the government. You didn't, don't need a ministry of truth. So Milton was always, till the end of his life, radically on the side of freedom. It doesn't mean that he was an atheist like Shelley, um, but he was radically on the side of freedom, and he thought that God the real God, not the God in Paradise Lost, but the real God was on the side of freedom. He thought the God in Paradise Lost was is represented as being more or less like um, King Charles I. Um, and, and so Shelley read Paradise Lost and he said, you know, it's, cl it's clear that Satan is the hero of Paradise Lost. Um, Blake thought that Satan was the hero of Paradise Lost. What he said about um, Milton was that he was a true poet and of the devil's party without knowing it. That is, he couldn't, he had to be on Satan's side. Um, the best readings, the most interesting readings of Paradise Lost are readings which see Milton struggling with the fact that he sees Satan as the champion of freedom and God as an oppressor. Um, and he doesn't want, he wants to write a poem in support of God as the champion of freedom, but the story won't let him. And so he has a great deal of um, trouble telling the story that he thinks he's supposed to tell. And his um, honesty of thought, this is what Blake is saying, made him finally make Satan um, the great figure in Paradise Lost and God a detestable figure in Paradise Lost. Um, so that's how the young romantics read Milton, um, as the satanic Milton, as the person on the side of Satan, uh, which is to say on the side of freedom even when that freedom costs you everything, as a revolutionary on behalf of freedom. And what the older romantics were doing, they were basically saying, no, 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 and if, if that's what um, kind of Miltonic, do people know what dissenting and nonconformist religions are in England? Um, do you know? Okay, so I can't believe I'm giving you a pot of history of Protestantism now, but I am. Okay, so you know that the word Protestant means protesting, right? One who protests is a Protestant. Um, so Protestantism is essentially a protest movement against the Catholic Church. Um, and it is mostly, though not entirely associated um, with the protest that Luther began. Um, against what he saw as the corruption of the Catholic Church. And um, Luther thought the church was, had become incredibly rich and incredibly corrupt and um, that they were basically um, saying what church doctrine was. And the church very uh, notoriously did not allow people to read the Bible um, because the Bible might seem to contradict things that the church was doing. And you kind of needed you would need so much explanation as to why the Bible didn't say what it seemed to be saying that they basically said, don't read it. Protestant movements were movements that translated the Bible into 
vernacular languages. That's the first radical thing they did, was they said if you're English and you don't know Latin, you should be able to read the Bible in English. Um, if you're French, you should be able to read it in French. If you're German, I, Martin Luther, am going to translate it into German. Why? So that people can read God's words and decide for themselves what God meant. So the Protestant revolution was essentially one which said that belief was a matter of individual, of the individual person's um, relation to God. Not the individual person's relation to the church, but the individual person's relation to God. The church could help you. Ministers could help you. But they didn't actually have authority over you. They couldn't decide what was going to happen to you. They couldn't um, give you absolution. They couldn't say, okay, you've confessed, so everything is fine. It was all between you and God. So you can see that a movement that says it's all between you and God would start um, um, putting the human soul much more front and center than the human soul is in a situation where it's the church that has the relation with God and humans individually can belong to the church um, and um, be accepted yeah. by the church and if we're accepted by the church then we um, believe we have this relationship to God um, and the best way um, to show our acceptance by the church and our relationship to God is to give the church money um, and this also has to do with the doctrine of purgatory um, which was a Catholic church doctrine, not completely unbiblical, but basically it said most people when they die will be punished but not sent to hell. After a while they can go to heaven. The punishment can last a really long time, 500 years, 1,000 years. It's really miserable. But if people pray for you when you're dead, um, God will listen to their prayers and will take away time from your punishment. And if you really want people to pray for you when you're dead, um, the church has people who will do that for you. Um, and all you have to do is, is give them money and um, you will get prayers after your death and purgatory will be that much shorter. So the 1% will get to heaven really fast um, and the 99% it's going to take longer. Um, so this was all Luther and others, but Luther most successfully saw this as corrupt. And said, no, it's between the individual believer and God. Um, in England, Henry VIII was king of England, and he and the Pope got along pretty well. Um, and he was given, people may know that he got the title Defender of the Faith, because what he did was he wrote a treatise against, pro against radical Protestantism, that is against Protestantism, period. Um, but Henry VIII also, um, not understanding genetics and where the Y chromosome comes from, um, was disappointed not to have a son. And so he kept wanting to divorce various wives um, because he wanted an heir. Um, and um, various other um, rulers of England to whose women folk he was married at various times didn't want him divorcing their cousins and daughters and sisters and so on. Um, but you, he could only get a divorce if the pope um, permitted it. So at first the pope did, then the pope stopped, <coughs> and then he said, well, if you feel that way, um, remember that all kings derive their authority from God just as much as the pope does. 
um, since since there is a divine right of kings, since the king of England um, is king of England by by the establishment of God of the very idea of kingship and the anointment of the king of England as having originally having my line appointed by God, I have just as much religious authority as you do, and I am therefore going to establish my own religion in England, my own version of Christianity, which will be called the Church of England. Um, and I'm going to appoint an archbishop who will really be the head of it, except that I'm really the head of it. And, oh, look at that, I'm allowed to get divorced um, in my religion. Um, so England became a Protestant country with a huge, huge asterisk, which is that English Protestantism um, did have bishops and archbishops and... Um, and the same church hierarchy that the Roman Catholic Church did. It didn't have a pope, that was the king. Um, but it did have something like the same church hierarchy. And um, so is anyone here Episcopalian um, or Anglican? So anyhow, high Anglicanism, as it's sometimes called, or high Episcopalianism, um, was an English version of Catholicism, sufficiently so that they're, they're there have been movements and are still movements to rejoin the Episcopal Church with the Roman Church. They're not so radically at odds that they couldn't become, um, that, that the schism couldn't, couldn't um, heal. Um, and Milton was a radical Protestant. He wasn't um, a Church of England Protestant. Um, he thought the Church of England was, he called it um, uh, popery, that is, he called it um, just a version of Catholicism, um, pretending to um, respect freedom of conscience, but not. And um, therefore, the Puritan Revolution, it's why the Puritans came to America, was because they saw the Church of England as fake Protestant. Um, and so they came to America to do real Protestantism. There's everything in the world to say against American Puritan. Puritans, um, and there's plenty to say against the Puritans who stayed in England, but there's plenty to say for them as well. Um, Roger Williams establishing Providence, for example, as a place where there is freedom of religion, that's the right thing to come out of radical Protestantism. Um, Winthrop establishing um, an intensely authoritarian um, Puritan uh, dem demands in Massachusetts, that's the wrong thing to come out of radical Protestantism. So what Milton was actually interested in was the way radicals became conservatives when they got power. Um, and that's what the younger romantics were also interested in, how radicals, when they got power or got close to power, suddenly they liked power. Um, suddenly they thought, well, if we're in power, it's okay. Yeah. They don't all. I mean, Robespierre stayed pretty radical right until the end. Yeah, but it didn't prevent him from thinking he could kill anyone he wanted. Yeah, it's, I think it's a pretty radical idea. <laughs> yeah, but it's also an idea in which, in which his own power became... Um, I mean, that's one of the things that disgusted Wordsworth, was that, wrote that he was all for the French Revolution. I quoted what he said in the 1790s, that um, bliss was it in that dawn to be alive, but to be young was very heaven. But then Robespierre comes along and, um, in the guise of fighting for freedom, um, starts beheading people right and left, um, beheading anyone who was a political opponent. It's not only 
what is already evil, that he's beheading the aristocracy for being aristocrats, but he's beheading anyone who um, goes against him in what's supposed to be a democratic institution in the assembly, um, so that people like Danton um, are, are um, beheaded as well. Um, and that's supposed to be a give and take of a parliament, but parliamentary, you know, it's, it's, it's what certain people in our own House of Representatives might want to do to people on the other side of the aisle. Um, so the very people who think government should be smaller are the people who will use the powers of government to hurt others. It's like Karl Rove um, seeing to it that um, was it the ex-governor of Alabama was imprisoned on what was clearly a, a political charge. Um, so that so Milton was really interested in the way, and this is one of the things that happens to Satan, those who are all for liberty forget to be for liberty when suddenly they're the ones who have power. Then they think, okay, liberty for me. Um, now I have power, that's great. And Shelley, and to a lesser extent Byron, but Byron too, were really worried about this dynamic. Um, worried about the dynamic where champions of freedom who were successful then became champions of themselves. It's very hard to tell the difference between being a champion of freedom and being a champion of your own freedom. And um, Blake was also very worried about this. That is what happens in Blake's mythology. Blake invented his own mythology, which we haven't touched, and um, which you need a course to do um, just on Blake. Um, but Blake invented his own mythology, and in that mythology, there are various figures who rebel against God, but then become tyrannical in themselves. So they're great at first, and then something happens to them when they gain power. And Blake is really worried about how to get around this. One of his epic poems is a poem called Milton. Um, and Milton is... Uh, one of the heroes of this poem, it's Milton after he dies, and then he comes down to earth and um, does all sorts of, of supernatural things. Um, but um, that's what Byron and Blake and Shelley saw happening to Wordsworth and Southey. So an example is, a uh, famous story is that um, Shelley went to see Mont Blanc, um, which was the great, um, we may actually, it may be, it, it'll be worthwhile looking at his poem, Mont Blanc, um, the great sublime site in Europe. And there was a visitor's um, uh, book that you sign, um, and it basically said, name, you know, nom, um, what is it, name of the traveler, and then um, origine and destination, origin and destination. So Shelley wrote P.B. Shelley, and then Origin, London, and Destination, he wrote L'Enfer, that is to say, Hell. <laughs> um, and unfortunately for poor Shelley, the next person to open the visitor's guide to sign his name was this guy, Bob Southey, <coughs> who was scandalized, just scandalized. So he went back to England and said, that's Shelley, he's as atheistical and awful as ever. Um, you know, Shelley's 20 years younger than he is. Um, and it gets in all the newspapers. It becomes a scandal all over London. Um, and um, then when Shelley died, um, so the other thing about the younger romantics is the older romantics bookended them. So 
Um, Wordsworth's, this is the thing Yates was complaining about, Wordsworth's dates are 1770 to 1850, so he lives to be 80. Um, Coleridge's dates are 1772 to 1834, um, so he lives to, into his 60s. Um, Byron, Byron's dates are 1788 to 1823. So he's 18 years younger than Shelley, and he dies, I mean, 18 years younger than Wordsworth and dies 27 years before Wordsworth dies. Shelley's dates are 1792, 22 years younger than Wordsworth, four years younger than Byron, to 1822. So he dies, so he's born 22 years after Wordsworth, dies 28 years before him. Keats's dates are 1790. Um, what is it, 1795 to 1821. So he's three years younger than Shelley, and he dies a year before Shelley. Keats died at 26. Um, so the younger romantics were also the romantics who died in their youth. And the older romantics were, as Yeats said, those who at 80 um, would, would just withered into 80, as, um, as Wordsworth, uh, as, excuse me, as Yeats, who himself didn't quite live that long, but almost said when he was a young man of Wordsworth. Um, Karl Marx said that every true revolutionary um, admires and adores both the spirit of Shelley and Byron. Byron died actually fighting for Greek freedom. Um, he, he went um, to, to um, join and to command um, a Greek rebel army against um, Turkish occupation of Greece. Um, and he died in that campaign. He died of a fever, but he died um, in... He was, he was, he was courageous. Um, um, so what Marx said is that um, we, all true revolutionaries lament the death of both Shelley and Byron. However, Shelley would have remained a true, true revolutionary to the end of his life. Byron, like everyone else... Um, would have eventually become conservative. So we don't, we're not so upset by the death of Byron in his youth as we are by the death of Shelley in his youth. Why do, you, why do we know that? That's Marx's guess on, on the basis of reading their work. And also because Byron was infatuated with himself in a way that Shelley wasn't. That is, Byron would always go around calling himself... Um, what is it? The lone outlaw of his own dark mind. Um, you know, he, he wore black a lot. Um, sure. it, it mattered to him that he should... Well, what Shelley said about him, they were best friends, um, absolutely best friends. And when Shelley died, Byron said of him, um, he was the only man I ever knew who was not a brute and a fool. Um, so you can see there's a little bit of arrogance <laughs> in um, what Byron is saying there. Well, every other man I've ever met was a brute and a fool. Um, but Shelley, no, he was the only one who wasn't. Shelley wrote a great poem, a conversation, based on a conversation and called a conversation between him and Byron called Julian and Madelow. Shelley is Julian and, and Count Madelow is Lord Byron. Um, and um, he has some very acute things to say about Byron in the poem. In the preface to the poem, he says um, that Madelow is, is brilliant. It is his weakness, um, brilliant. And um, he also says, and there is no more generous spirit um, to be found anywhere. 
but it is his weakness to be proud. He derives from a comparison of his own mind with the dwarfish intellects that surround him an intense apprehension of the nothingness of human life, um, which is a pretty hilarious account. That is that Byron goes around, he sees that people are just not that smart, and this fills him with despair about the nothingness of human life. Um, and in the poem Julian and Madelow, the description of Madelow is that um, um, oh, what is it? Um, Methinks, a sense that he was greater than his kind, methinks had struck his eagle spirit blind through gazing at its own exceeding light. So that's a really good description of Byron. That is that he's so brilliant and so bright that he blinded himself. Um, and that's the kind of thing that Marx was, um, was responding to. Um, whereas Shelley was preternaturally generous, and um, although he did lots of questionable things, uh, those questionable things were always out of interest in other people, um, and just just um, absolute, he was, he was intense, probably more intense than anyone else, um, but that intensity never in Shelley became pride, um, and the dangers of pride, that you take pride in your own freedom, that's the danger in Satan. Um, that's what Satan does in Paradise Lost, is he becomes too proud. Yeah. Since it seems like we're not going to get to an actual yeah, poem we are, anyway, we are, we are. Um, well, how do you think Ezra Pound falls into that? Uh, he hated them all. <laughs> he hated Milton. I realize, but I think he's kind of on Wordsworth side of things. Why does he, why did he hate Milton? Um, because if you were Ezra Pound, you didn't want to admit that anyone could be better than you. Oh. And it was really hard if Milton was around. <laughs> Um, even for Ezra Pound. Well, he became the press, essentially the press manager for Mussolini. Yeah, no, no, he became a fascist. Yeah. So, um, he's kind of like even worse than Wordsworth. He, yeah. he wasn't even like the stamp collector. He was actually doing bad things with his poetry. Yeah, and he was, he was giving radio addresses for Mussolini during the war, and he was arrested for treason and might have been executed, except that... Um, that crazy. Yeah. Um, he, he got off on, on, he, on, by reason of insanity. Um, so, but, um, he has a really neat book called The ABC of Reading, which is before any of this horror started. Um, and in The ABC of Reading, he basically says, anyone who likes Milton's an idiot. Um, and he quotes some lines that are somewhat hard to parse in Milton, um, and says, this is just not English. Not only is it not poetry, it's not even English. Um, but he's wrong. Um, you know, Pound is good um, as a poet in some of his poems, um, but he's definitely from an app from a very, very different tradition, um, and he's a counter tradition to the Romantics. Pound and Eliot hated Romantic poetry um, because they, um, as Eliot put it, um, Eliot, who's also an anti-Semitic jerk but a better poet than Pound, um, as Eliot put it. Um, um, the, the romantic poets thought that poetry was the expression of personality, um, and they don't see 
the extent to which poetry must be an escape from personality, that people go to poetry to escape themselves, not to um, express themselves. Now, I actually think that's true of romantic poetry, too. Um, I think that's, um, but it's, uh, at least it gives you a sense of the different flavor, different tone of the Eliot Pound version of modernism um, from the post-romantic version of modernism, which if we look at a Stevens poem, which, um, you know, if, if, if we had four or five more semesters, we could do this. Um, uh, we could also discuss a little bit. Um, but let me just quickly say something about your, um, since Rachel asked it, um, in an email, just about your journals. So they're like officially due on Thursday. Um, but I think it might be better to wait if you want. You can get them in Thursday if you're ready. If not, but if you want to wait till we're done with the intimation zone, which we really will be one day soon, um, that might make sense also. The journaling in the next set of notes? Right, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So intimations out. Uh, we have a few minutes. Um, and so let's just, let's just get back up to speed. Um, where we were um, was, oops, what page is that? Here it is. Never mind. I got it. Um, what we'd looked at were the way Wordsworth gave up after the fourth stanza um, and then returns to the poem two years later. And the really important thing, and this is um, um, worth charting, the really important thing is that if you graph the experience that he's describing in the um, first four stanzas of the intimation, so what he's saying is, here's this region, childhood. where things are great, where the earth and every common sight are apparelled in celestial light, the glory and the freshness of the dream, of a dream. But it is not now as it has been of yore. So now we get from there to here to this time of now, and that's really bad. Turn where air I made by night or day, the things that I have seen I now concede no more. Then he tries to get himself um, enthusiastic again in the now, and he gets up a little bit, but it doesn't last. Um, but there's a tree of many one, a single field that I have looked upon. Both of them speak of something that is gone. The pansy of my feet doth the same tale repeat. So this is a graph, a kind of box graph, of human life. Then, two years later, he comes up with a different picture. Notice, by the way, that this picture is a picture of a fall. That is, that childhood is like Eden. Childhood is like the Garden of Eden. What Emerson says is that childhood is the Eden that beckons us back to a lost paradise. And also, Emerson asks, what is the face that every that the world shows to every aspiring spirit? Strange to say, the fall of man. So what, what the romantics, Wordsworth, Emerson, other romantics, Emerson's American, but he's writing in that tradition, what they all 
do is they secularize the story that Milton told in Paradise Lost, which is the fall of Adam and Eve. And they say, no, it's what happens to every human being. Starts out seeing celestial light, heavenly light everywhere, glory and freshness. And then it all collapses when you grow up. So the story of the Garden of Eden is a mythologization of human experience, the human experience that everyone has. So the question then is, how do we try to, how do we get back to Eden? And the answer it looks like for Wordsworth, yeah. well, no, it looks like death is just meh. The answer it looks like for Wordsworth is you can't. That the reason the story is mythologized in Genesis is that it promises a happy <coughs> ending. But once you get rid of the supernatural element and say there is no God and there is no um, um, savior who's going to come and bring you back to heaven, you won't get back. And that's why he gives up writing the poem. Then two years later, we're going to get a different graph. And the graph is going to be, we can now say, our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting, is that at birth, let's start it here, birth going right into childhood, at birth, we're already on a downward trajectory. Our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. The soul that rises with us, our life starts that elsewhere its setting cometh from afar. So instead of the original, this was great and then we fell, what we get is we're already falling at the moment of birth. It wasn't that we fell later, it's that we were already falling without knowing it. And earth fills her lap with pleasures of her own, yearnings she hath of a maternal kind and no unworthy aim to make the homely nurse doth all she can to make her foster child her inmate man forget the heavenly glories he hath known. So it turns out childhood is already a descent downwards. And that descent implies an origin before birth, which you can't see, but you saw where I was writing, an origin, a heavenly origin before birth that was higher than birth. So it's not that, that, that childhood was the greatest thing ever, it's just the greatest thing we remember. But childhood was already the shadows of the prison house enclosing us. And we don't realize that for a long time. But finally, at about 1803, we do realize it. Or 1798, if you're, if you're actually looking at Wurzer's career, we do realize it. We see things going, getting worse and worse. So we go from an idea that child, childhood was great and it's gone forever, to childhood was great, but not because it was great in itself but because it still had some memory of the human potential for greatness. That in childhood, our we were aware of our own potential. And being aware of that potential was what made childhood great. So let's stop with that idea that this <coughs> revision of this line, this rewriting of this line, 
as a downward slope rather than a plateau with an edge that you fall off describes an idea that potential itself, awareness of potential, can fill you with a sense of glory and wonder and freshness and sublimity. Just a sense of potential can do it. Because that's what Wordsworth says our childhood was. And we'll pick up from that on Wednesday. See, so we got somewhere. <laughs>